Hello and welcome to On Landscape. I'm here with Joe Cornish and David Ward. Hello to Joe and David. Hello. Hi. Uh, and we are going to chat today about um, a strangely controversial point of view uh, in in landscape photography and in landscape art in general, which is um, the idea of truth to nature or the eyewitness tradition to use a couple of phrases that uh, that have some history I mean, mr ruskin was one of the people who wrote about how uh, artists should go out and be true to what they see add nothing take nothing away just represent um and in terms of photography this would seem to be a fairly obvious thing as photography is a a, a mimetic uh, technology. However, it, it is an issue. Um, and I think with the way photography is moving, with the access to uh, editing, it's become more, shall we say, controversial. Um, so I'm interested in both of your viewpoints around this. I know we've discussed things like this in the past, but but Joe, you, you would say you work in an eyewitness tradition. Is, is, is that how you understand it? Yes, it is. And the reason uh, it is... I mean, first thing to say, Tim, is that I do believe that it's a, a free world and, and people should use photography as, as they wish. Um, but I also feel that there's a... Liberal poppycock. There you go. Uh, <laughs> nice intervention. Um, I, I still, for me, it really matters uh, that, that I have a retain what, I, what you might call the umbilical cord to reality um, as a perceptual reality um, and that is based on on a fundamental philosophical um, kind of idea uh, and and also on personal experience so the the reason it's philosophical is that that as you say you describe photography as a mimetic experience as a mimetic form um, I actually think that uh, that, that part of its power is for it to be, as it were, true as much as you can use the word true about uh, something that is not actually reality but a, a description of it um, in in spirit. Uh, so that's a that's the kind of philosophical angle. And the the personal experience is that from my own uh, as an uh, when I was an assistant in Washington, I spent months and months working in the in the uh, studio doing fabricated sets. This is long before Photoshop and the sort of digital manipulation which everybody's familiar with now. And many of these images uh, that uh, which I assisted the production of were, were to illustrate uh, ideas, conceptual. Um, and I had the very strong impression at the end of my time as an assistant that all they had done was be a very expensive way of using uh, airbrush uh, in, in alternative to airbrush art that they they'd achieved nothing um photographic so i i suppose i was embedded very early on as it were that as a an eyewitness photographer because also all my favorite photography was uh documentary photography uh whether it's from the street from uh, from wars from um from uh life uh Ge national geographic and so on and that, that that was a photography i really loved um and that that was exciting to me so i kind of i mean it's not exactly like a religious thing but i i definitely committed 
to uh, to being, I think, a, an eyewitness photographer from a, young, a relatively young age. And although I've really loved seeing lots of crea incredible creative stuff and the advances that have come with new technology and digital, particularly over the years, um, my commitment to the idea of the eyewitness tradition remains um, personal. Uh, it's not it's not one that I have any objection to other people doing what they will, but I think a lot of the power of photography resides in the eyewitness tradition. David? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a debate that's 195 years old or something now, isn't it? You know, is, are photographs true? Um, and that debate is, I suppose, uh, based on two two kind of incontrovertible facts. Um, the photograph is ineluctably, is unbreakably bound to the thing that is photographed. You can't have the photograph without the thing that is photographed. Um, so uh, there is a suggestion that because of that link, that the photograph is uh, in some sense an unalloyed truth. Uh, and then the concomitant um, objection when there is obvious manipulation of the image that somehow you have sullied the truth. Um, uh, and uh, I, don't, I don't think that really there's any justification for that because uh, for a start, nobody has a, gives a, any objection at all to the fact that paintings aren't real. Yeah. Somehow that's okay for you to have that, that, that part of art or or um, literature or or playwrights or any other kind of art it's perfectly fine for you to make stuff up in fact that is the basis of most art that you've made it up um, but for some reason photography is supposed to be um, true to this ideal uh, and uh, I think I think there's a there's a falsehood in that in that argument whenever you make an image you make a selection of reality um, Forgetting the fact that, for a start, you're only um, representing, representing the visual element of reality. Um, you know, you're missing out sounds, you're missing out temperature, you're missing out wind, you're missing out whatever else is there in the environment where you're taking taking the photograph. Um, you're also collapsing all possible views into the one that you represent. So. You've worked out where you want to stand and everything that's outside the frame has been excluded and people can't reconstruct that yeah. from the image that you present to them. Um, so philosophically, I would say that there is no basis whatsoever for there to have to be a link between truth and photography. Um, well, maybe not no basis whatsoever, but it's a tenuous, it's a tenuous link and it's fine for it to be broken. In fact, some of the most... Um, kind of celebrated photographs, if we think of uh, Ansel Adams' pictures in Yosemite or of uh, Denali, um, you know, they're, they're very heavily manipulated pictures. Or you can even think of something like the Nautilus shells uh, or the peppers by, by Weston, because um, he, he took very, very long exposures of those. And in the process, he changed the way that the light was wrapping itself around the the subject so that they're all um manipulations however i am very sympathetic to joe's view um and i i think probably until fairly recently i would have described myself also as being uh 
an eyewitness photographer um, because I, I've always been fascinated with this idea uh, that if you can make a straight photograph of something which then confounds people's perception actually that's much cleverer and much more interesting than making a manipulated photograph which which uh, confounds people's perception um you know to to take a straight image and, and make people think about it is 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 a neater trick than to take an image and then do something very clever in post-production or in the darkroom or whatever and, and to achieve the same result um I'm in the digital era now I'm mostly or in fact entirely shooting digital now I do much more manipulation than I would have done in the in the film era is that a good thing yeah I don't know I think it's just the way my um, creative uh, path has taken um, I've just become more interested in manipulation Having said that, I started off, Joe mentioned documentary, I started off as a documentary photographer at college, that's what I did, um, and all black and white images that I made at college were manipulated in some way or another, you know, you chose to print on grade four or grade five, or or you, um, or you, you whatever you did, you know, you used a slow shutter speed or a fast shutter speed to change people's perception, they're all manipulations. I think this is where the... Oh, so go on, Joe. No, no, I just wanted to dive in uh, there since uh, David was you know, mentioning the darkroom. Um, you know, that here is one of the obvious... There's so many uh, conundrums around this theme, um, but one I wanted to bring up early early on was the, F, the, the, concept, the, the F64 concept. So uh, you, we'll all recall, I'm sure, that uh, in the, 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 the photo secession era of the beginning of the 20th century... Um, that there, there was a very strong movement in aspirational high, high art photography uh, to, uh, to to emulate painting. Um, and of course, most uh, photographers are still working in black and white at this stage, although there was some pioneering colour work going on. Um, and and actually, the F sixty four movement grew up as a, uh, a a kind of contradiction of the the. Um, Photo, the painting emulating movement and the idea was to photograph things quote unquote as they really are which is pretty ironic when all of those photographers were working in black and white but it, it, it just goes to show you know the idea of uh, the whole the, the name F64 the idea is to reflect the aperture that, that describes things with maximum detail and depth and uh, so you know with a large camera that's that's the aperture that you would have used to achieve that and and which is also a manipulation because human vision doesn't work like that we don't see everything sharp front to back well that that yeah exactly and it in fact it is human vision that 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 is the biggest uh mystery of all isn't it because our vision is actually a construction um from data so really, in many ways, it, it, the, the brain does what 95% of the heavy lifting of vision is, is one way it's been described, where, whereby the eye provides the raw material of, of little points of focus, but the brain then literally uh, reconstructs it um, as something that appears to be everything's in focus more or less all of the time, even in your peripheral vision, when we know it cannot be optically. Yeah, well, it's well, it's 
if you concentrate hard, you realise it isn't actually envisioned. There's that thing where if you hold up mm -hmm. some fingers and you move them in, you actually have to get it right almost in front of your eye before you can count count the fingers because mm. you, you don't have any information in, in the peripheral uh, portion of your vision um, or, or very little information uh, and and the perceived sharpness is is to do with persistence of vision isn't it like you say it's the the brain cons constructing a model essentially of the environment in which you are which you remember so so you, you're not actually looking at a portion of it but you remember that Ronnie is sitting over there on your right hand side and you and you can imagine him in your head as being in sharp focus but until you actually look at him he isn't if it was Ronnie Cray it's just as well you can remember he was there isn't it <laughs> um, anyway. are we talking about Martin Little John's cats or are we talking about <laughs> you know they were there <laughs> Another thing that, that um, came up recently which uh, I'd, I'd never heard before is that because it takes the brain about a fifth of a second to process all the information that it receives from the optic nerve, the brain actually anticipates that by around about a fifth of a second. Otherwise, we wouldn't have no eye-hand coordination sports, for example, which right. is pretty yeah. astonishing. I, well, yes, I, I, I read something many, many years ago saying that basically it's impossible for a batsman to to work out with a fast bowler where the ball is going to be, yet they still hit the ball. Mm. So, <laughs> so there's clearly some yeah. some anticipation going on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So <coughs> anyway, I mean, one of the, but the sorry, Tim, your turn. No, no, I was going to say one of the interesting things about photography and two dimensional art in general is is that we aren't inherently able to understand it when when photography is taken out to some of the. Um, lost tribes in South America, for instance, they don't understand what they're seeing at all. No, that's a myth. That's a Is myth. it? Oh, damn. Yeah. damn. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there were some problems about black and white, I think, when the, when the research was first done in the 50s. Ah, so black and white they, is, is a lie then? Well, black, black and white is, is more abstracted, isn't it? Yes. But, yeah. um, uh, and and they, had, they had trouble with some, some things that were shown to them. Um, but if you show them human faces with uh, or gestures, they they fully un they fully under understood them. Yeah, it's a, oh, look it up. It, it is a myth. It's quite an yes. interesting myth, but it's a myth. Yeah, it's a nice myth. <laughs> it is. It's well, it's a, it's a warm, comforting yeah. myth, isn't it? I'm, I'm going to still believe it just to make myself. <laughs> there, are, there are many myths about perception, aren't there? But I mean, in in the end, does this. Um, this conversation will always come back to where where's the where's the boundary? Is there a boundary uh, of uh, between what's what what could be described as the eyewitness tradition uh, and, and what lies outside it? What what is kind of unacceptable manipulation? And Tim, you've been you've been doing a lot of work for landscape international landscape photography of the year recently. Yes, indeed. So, what was yeah. your impression? Um, I mean, the international landscape photography of the year is is um, I won't say it's out there in terms of rules, but they, they allow any any manipulation and there is no judging of whether a photog photograph has been manipulated too far or it's a composite, uh, or even possibly whether it's had um, graphical elements introduced. I mean, it, the, 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 you have to take things on face value and that's what the judges are asked to assess. Um, and th this is where it comes into being partially subjective because there are five judges and each judge will have their own interpretation of what uh, 
how they perceive the levels of manipulation in an image. And that's very difficult to do without reference. Um, I, I took quite a few images where I recognised a location. It was easier to see the manipulations, but because I don't know um, America and Australia, there was quite a few photographs where you look at them and you think, well, is that real? Am I seeing something um, that has been grossly manipulated or is the manipulation in character? Or, or should I even be judging this? Is it merely an aesthetic that I'm judging? Um, and, it, and the different judges obviously had different criteria because uh, the th things that I chose weren't some of the things that were chosen in the finals to, to win the awards um, or, or to be published in the book. Now, is there anything wrong with those manipulations? I don't think there is anything wrong with them at all. However, I did find it difficult personally to, to link what I was seeing in the competition with what I accept as good landscape photography. I'm not, I have my own criteria, so I am subjective. But I, th I think there is a certain criteria that I like to use, which is I, I hope that what I'm seeing is something that has not deceived me. I hope that I'm seeing something that I can imagine what the photographer was in front of. Um, when, when that link is taken away from me, I, I find it difficult to appreciate the photography in the same way. Um, I, 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 and I start doubting everything I see as well. Um, and that, that's, that's a difficult thing to, to work around basically, because how, how can I judge any photography once that's, uh, once that's happened? You know, I, I need to know in some cases whether, whether a photograph is real or not in order to appreciate it, which, which seems wrong. But what that means is I start judging photographers by their gross output. So, I mean, for instance, I know, I know Joe Cornish, I know the ethics he talks about. Uh, I know yourselves, I know you use large format, David, and, and therefore I know some context around the work. And, and I think that's, that's what happens now. I start, to, I start to doubt the individual image without context. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's sad or not. I um, don't know no, how to take that. Yeah, well, we, it comes back. That comes back, I think, doesn't it, to um, a sort of uh, deeply ingrained belief that photographs should be true, uh, which they patently aren't. But but I I think for me it would be the motives for the quote unquote deception that would bother me. So. I can think of any number of black and white photographs which are clearly highly manipulated in tonal value, um, but they are, they are manipulated in that way because um, the photographer is using that as part of his art in order to emphasise or de-emphasise or to change the way the, the photograph is read. Um, and so that's purely for an artistic reason. I can also think of any number of colour images of the landscape which have been highly manipulated um, purely I think to make them look more spectacular not to actually give them any different emotional uh, effect or to uh, to convey a feeling uh, beyond a kind of sickly sweet wow to the viewer um, and that I find 
difficult because that I find uh, is more about the photographer talking about himself. It's about boasting rights than it is about the photographer trying to express a feeling or or even, you know, maybe just um, reverence for the place where they were. Um, so I find that irreverent. I find that um, uh, quite... Um, yeah demeaning of the place that's being photographed i suppose yeah. um so i find that difficult and then the other thing is the is the very deliberate uh um deceptions where somebody says that that something is a single single capture let's say when you know that it's not possible to photograph the full moon and a starry sky and sunset and get all of them perfectly exposed in a single image doesn't matter what you do that's not possible but there are people who put images up who say that they've done that and people who are not photographically aware think that that is the case and yeah. I, and I, and I think that that is a clear example of a deliberate deception and that's where some of the frustration I think arises in photographers is is they start to a lot a lot of people may be working within a framework that they 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 don't want to deceive and then they see work gaining a lot of attention which has obviously been distorted uh and and you can't be surprised that there is a a, a reaction against that and and there is a boundary to it you start to think what what is acceptable i mean we work with graduated filters which change the tonal relationship between the sky and the ground but if you swap the sky out with another sky um, that that becomes a, a distortion too far. I think most people would accept. Thank that. you, Photoshop, for adding that. <laughs> <laughs> so can I, can I just jump in there, Tim, because that, that's one of the things that um, it, it, it comes straight back to that. What is what does the brain see, and what does the camera see? You know, and we we know that this is part of what makes photography interesting. It's there's a big difference between the two. Um, if we take the graduated filter example, used correctly graduated filter will often give a result that looks much more like what we see so you know that there, there's a, a kind of justification for using it um, and the fact that it, it it's a, a, a relatively quick and easy way of producing a more successful picture but often the, the success of the of the result is down to the fact that the sky now is rendered more as the brain sees it and whether it's exactly the same of course it's debatable and and my you know i'm a big fan by the way of raw converses and photoshop because i think that they are superb tools for working on the raw file to then achieve the result that you want in a print or in the final rendering but for me often that rendering at least in the foundation of it is based on how can i make it look exactly like what i saw as opposed to looking like a raw file which might be flat or it might be the wrong color it often is the wrong color um, as it as it appears um, and, and then there are subtle uh, alterations, which obviously I think artistically you would say, you know, part of your own response to the place, whether it's to do with warmth or coolness or to do with luminance in particular, to bring the picture to life. To, for me, there's a, there's a kind of ecosystem of editing that remains within the, within the eyewitness tradition, if I could put it that way. And that is, that is still... Uh, true to the idea of art because artists create something new 
you know, if, if David mentioned, you know, writing, poetry, dance, um, painting, other art forms, where there's no obligation to reproduce what was there. It's only photography that has appears to have that obligation. Um, but what makes photography unique is that appearance of that link with with the real experience. Mm. I think that that's the most complex aspect of of this debate. Really, um, is whether we think that connection with the uh, eyewitness experience is significant or not and I, I by the way I don't think there's an answer to this uh, the, yeah the this, is the, <laughs> this is the really well, interesting I, thing isn't it because it's I think everybody individually would say there is a line but trying to articulate that line and trying to get a, a mutual acceptance of that line is is well will be mostly impossible I think you can get an idea of where it is and know when it's been crossed personally but to define it's quite hard Very it's a so. zone isn't it not a line really mm. it's yeah. a zone yeah but uh, if you if you the very last issue of camera work featured paul strand's work um and his straight straight photography um uh, and that's where i think it really kind of came to the fore this idea that f that the ontological basis of photography was that depiction of truth that straight transfer of reality onto onto a plane clearly involves lots of transformations which make it no longer of real uh, real it's of reality but it's not real um but it's stuck it's really stuck that notion isn't it you know the an eyewitness report is not as um believable as a photograph of something yeah which Probably for very good reasons, but no. <laughs> but the photograph is, but it's 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 become a a standard of veracity. The photograph is seen as the, you know, in some circumstances anyway, as the highest standard of veracity, the highest standard of proof. When it actually isn't. No, it, it definitely um, it definitely isn't proof. You you're absolutely right. I think though to bring it back to to landscape. It's really the, this is what I find fascinating is is where where does that the the cord that connects the photograph to reality get get broken and I'm guessing a little bit from Tim's experience for example with International Landscape Photographer of the Year many of those images well, they're based on an eyewitness experience but then they're heavily manipulated not just not just tweaked for for color but also whether it's done with plugins or with filters, uh, digital filters that produce a very ethereal, dreamlike quality, I'm I'm just guessing here. I'm not not sure whether that's the case. But I've seen recently a little bit of that sort of going on, and I'm thinking, well, hang on a second. What 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 was wrong with the picture as it was? You know, in, in a way that it, it seems to me that this is this feels like a sugar coating process rather than a kind of digging into the file to to actually find out what the relationships are that, that maybe allow the photographer to express their own view a little bit more. It, it feels very superficial. And I, I guess that might be one of the reasons that, you know, you wanted to bring it up to him. Well, yeah. the, uh, sorry, I was just going to say something quite facetious, but I think 
slightly. I'll go for it, David. Slightly. Yeah, relevant. It's brilliant. Just that, you know, that, that phrase, which is, you know, you can't polish a turd. However, you can roll it in glitter. Ah, yes. Yes, indeed. Well, I, 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 I do wonder whether some of these, these effects may, may date in the same way the tobacco graduated filter dated from the 1980s and 70s. Oh. Oh. Uh, I know my dad's. My dad ruined a completely Scottish holiday of photographs by putting a tobacco grad on everything for the whole trip, um, <laughs> and always and half halfway down the image as right well because it was just a, yeah, it was just glass, wasn't it? Yeah, so you couldn't move one. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you wonder whether the autumn effect or the uh, heavy emphasis on magenta look in in current images is going to age in the same way, and and we'll look back at it and go, oh dear, what did we do? Yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> it's but, anyway. I think it, it's fashion. Is that it, it, there is a fashion element for it? For it yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. It, going back to the idea of of where the line is. I mean, we, we had a problem when we were looking at the rules for the wildlife photographer of the year, in how do we articulate some of these um, acceptable and unacceptable editing techniques? Now, the initial idea is to say, well. You can you can do this. You can you can use a brush. You can use a lightness. You can use saturation, but you can't use cloning. Um, but whatever we did, there were always exceptions. Now the wildlife photographer in the, of the year ended up barring any pixel changes, adding or subtracting pixels. However, the the underlying rule in the background that we had to apply was. Would the photography aware viewer feel deceived had they seen the original view that the photographer did? And I, I think that really gets to the heart of what uh, a lot of people would like to experience with photography. They would like to to enjoy um, and be wowed by it. There's nothing wrong with wow, but still have a faith in the photographer that what they're going wow at was really wow in the original experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the deceptions, isn't it? That you make something that wasn't really wow, wow. Um, and that's that's that feels like, uh, um, yeah, you feel you've been cheated in that in that circumstance. Um, I mean, I don't know. The, if you go back to um, Frank Meadow Sutcliffe's day, um, before orthochromic films, um, when you couldn't, well, blue was massively overexposed, wasn't it? So all skies were put in afterwards. Yeah. Were were people upset with him about that? Probably uh, not. <laughs> yeah, possibly yeah. with intention. Depends what he popped in, isn't it? I mean, if he'd have popped in a massive, um, epic North Sea stormy day onto the Norfolk Flats, I don't know, possibly. <laughs> uh, not but Norfolk Flats, but you get the idea. Whitby, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so so you mean a little like a, a rather infamous um, El Potty winner of Lindisfarne, yes. that, yes. like that. Yeah, get um, your light sources right if you're going to do it. <laughs> yeah, we don't live in a binary star system. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, this, 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 isn't eligible. There's no doubt that landscape photography was much more more challenging uh, back in the 19th century for that reason. I mean, he, you know, Carlton Watkins, for example, had a had a sky library. You know, so it's it seems incredible to us now, but that's the case. As did did Frank Meadow Sutcliffe. Um, I don't think they use them all the time, but you will definitely see examples. I mean, Charlie Kramer in his talk does that lovely example of 
Carlton Watkins sky, which appears in several different pictures. The same sky, different pictures, different landscapes. Yeah. So. But they, oh they, no, they do repeat. Skies definitely repeat. I've seen the same <laughs> sky lots of times. Yeah. But they they were problem solving techniques, and this is why it's interesting about what you can allow and not allow. Uh, and if you if you would have banned um, composites, you would have got something that was less than the truth through the result. Well, well perceptually less real. Yeah. So, so by allowing some of these techniques and by allowing Photoshop and the uh, ability to edit, you can get closer to a truth. Uh, and that, that's an interesting side effect if you were going to set some rules up. Some of these things that are currently being done, let's say perspective blends, where people take two different shots at slightly different focal lengths um, to solve a problem to represent something that they're seeing. What's the, I don't see any problem with that. It becomes a problem when the mountain's been stretched four times beyond geological sanity. Um, and, and yeah, I, I did see a picture of um, the dunes at Sossers Play where the uh, the angle of the slope was about seventy degrees. Um, so the sand will not stick at seventy degrees. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Good example. There are some fundamental physical rules that, that yeah. some things should abide by. Well, well, um, sorry, I, I was just, just on, on while we were going there um, about manipulation. Frank uh, Frank Hurley's photographs of uh, of the end uh, of the um, in, endeavor in the is it the not the endeavor? Sorry, the endurance in the ice. Uh, you know, sh shot at night with with flash, for example. Well, no, you know, if you'd been there, you would you would not have seen that scene. It would have been lit completely differently. So those those kind of lighting manipulations are another. Uh, kind of question that we would we accept it I mean or it's not about acceptance but it, it what do we think of it is it eyewitness tradition or not there's so many so many interesting so many interesting innovative and amazing for, uh, types of photography that have been done that that kind of stretch the idea of the eyewitness tradition so I'm definitely not not saying that anybody should stick to rules here I'm just expressing my own um, you know, if you're asking me about my own photography, that that would be my personal preference to try to stay within it. It's interesting that this is this isn't a, uh, a new problem. I'm, I found a quote last night. I don't know if I can read it from um, from Leonardo da Vinci. And this, that, sorry, it's not a quote, but it's a, it's from an article. And it says, unlike some artists, Leonardo did not believe in improving on or idealizing nature. He believed that the true artist became a mirror of nature. To this end, he also believed that all classes of natural things should be observed, the good, the bad, the beautiful, and the ugly. Part of his belief was a response to what he saw as an increasing conventionalization of nature in paintings of the early Renaissance, as artists developed formula for depicting living things. Um, and he believed that nature was the grand, sorry, painting was the granddaughter of nature. So it's, it's an old argument. That was Leonardo reacting against use of backdrops in paintings, I think, and um, people not observing. And that's, that's part of what I see as one of the power of photography as well, is the ability for the artist to, to really understand what they're seeing and then represent that understanding. Um, hmm. and it's it's like, a, sorry, I was just going to say the word represent is interesting because it's it's represent, isn't it? Really? Yes. Um, and and so, but it it comes across as uh, um, when you say represent, it somehow seems um, uh, it has a different connotation to represent. It's like a metaphor rather than a 
yeah, storytelling. Yeah, yeah, um, and and I think that that in itself tells you a little bit about how uh, vague all of these relationships are between reality and uh, and the photograph or a painting or art in general. Yeah. Um, one argument, of course, for manipulations, and I touched upon it earlier, is that they allow more expression. And if if you think in painting terms, you know, you can go to extreme lengths with the Cubists or Mondrian or um, Fauvists. Um, Gauguin, I think, um, painted a river that was blood red just because he felt that the colour balanced the other colours in the painting. Um, he wasn't suggesting that it was by a slaughterhouse. It just seemed right to him. Um, uh, so you could, some people could argue that um, that uh, sticking to an eyewitness tradition, not allowing manipulation of pixels, removal of pixels, um, and they're, they're quite separate things, aren't they? We, we all manipulate pixels. We would not be able to see a raw file. You need to manipulate pixels in order for it to be... Um, visible in order yep. for it to be understandable to a human um so um how much of a constraint is that um kind of sticking to the eyewitness tradition uh i think it's a fair constraint uh you know re it, it, it imposes reasonable uh limits but also i think constraints are good uh, yeah. The, his, the history of art shows that generally, where people work within constraints, that they, the, the, what they've produced has been more, more interesting. Whether that constraint is an ideological constraint, a political constraint, or a technical constraint, um, then, then that has a, a, I think, a profound effect. I think Joe would like to leap in here and yeah, I, agree with me or disagree. No, I definitely with me. agree. <laughs> and, and really, it was the, the, the point was Tim and I had a very interesting conversation with Paul Wakefield um, a week or two ago. And um, in his own work, Paul pretty much only uses one lens on, you know, his five by four, for example. And he, uh, I mean, yes, I think he does some editing, um, and he's shooting color neg, so there's quite a lot of work has to go in. But um, his photographs are never less than interesting. You know, you you could, it's extraordinary how that limitation seems to help him to make even more interesting pictures. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think one of my issues when I stopped shooting—I've got so many issues—but let's just stick with five four and <laughs> photography. One, one, one of my um, one of my uh, discomforts, I suppose, moving away from five four was I, I mostly I think I worked out once about seventy percent of my images were made on a two ten lens on the five four, um, and I'm shooting Velvia, which has a very constrained kind of response to light, high contrast, saturated film, all the rest of it. Um, and then you go to digital where in a way everything's up for grabs. Yes. Uh, and, and actually that that's quite difficult when you're used to working with constraints. So I have, I had to work out a new set of constraints for myself because yeah. <laughs> right. I found it. Yeah. Um, so I, I and I, I think it is if one of the reasons why there are schools of art, I think is that working within a constraint, working within an ideology or uh, or a, an aesthetic, um, is actually uh, a good way of exploring an idea and taking taking art forwards. I think. Silence. Agreed. <laughs> 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 Oh dear, we, we don't want to be agreeing too much. That would be a disaster. 
<laughs> break the habit of a lifetime. Exactly. <laughs> this, this does this does become a problem for a photographer that wants to work within, let's say, this eyewitness tradition. This this idea that they want to present something to the viewer that is connected with reality in some way. Of how how do they um, how, how do they represent that to the user? Do they have to tell everybody that that's what they're doing? Um, if they're not and they're being judged alongside work that isn't categorised in the same way, uh, are they going to uh, fail because the people who are manipulating will get a better reception? I mean, that, this is, I think this is the fundamental reason why a lot of people get upset about manipulation is, is they don't feel they are uh, working with a level playing field. Um, I'm not sure how to work around that because the people who are working manipulating aren't likely to label their work as manipulations with a little watermark. So, I, I, sorry, I'm going to just jump in there, but I, yeah. I actually think that, uh, that that ultimately you've got to ask the question, does the photograph work in its own terms uh, as, as a work of, of genuine creative expression? And I, I genuinely think that work that's really well well seen within the eyewitness tradition can hold always hold its own against sugar-coated wow photography um and indeed i you know if we if we you know take uh, the paul wakefield example i'd much rather have a paul wakefield to to look at and and immerse myself in than many of these so-called award-winning photographs that i think you may have been looking at tim yeah, it's it's a, a tough one. I think you have to accept that you are um, working um, with more challenges if you want to work in that with those constraints, and that you won't be producing work that make, makes people go wow on a daily basis, but that when it does happen, it will be it will be the better for it. Um, the, the si do, you, do you not think that? Sorry, go no, on. Just very briefly, the Simon Baxter portfolio that's in the current issue is a great example of work that's restrained, that's based very, you know, very much in the eyewitness tradition. Um, you know, Simon certainly edits his raw files, but the, the views that he presents are very clearly from nature, uh, you know, and they are very close to what, what he experienced. I've forgotten my point, so don't worry. <laughs> Sorry. Carry on. <laughs> well, well, it's interesting that, that there was a photographer in National Geographic, and I've forgotten his name, is a very famous photographer who was found out he was he was cloning individuals in and out of his pictures. Was it, um, was it Steve McCurry? It was Steve McCurry, yeah. Um, and that changed people's perceptions of all of his pictures in one in one fell swoop. It was in, it, so, that, so that people had a, an idea of who he was from all his Nat Geo work. And overnight, he seems to have gone from saying, well, I'm, I'm no longer a reporter, I'm an artist, I'm allowed to do anything. Um, and and it, it, by doing that, it brought into question all of his other work as well. Um, and, th and this, I think this is the, the challenge, because had, had he submitted any of these pictures to a competition and you, people would have said, wow, that's, that's fantastic. Um, and then you find out that it's been manipulated and changed. It does change things. So, yeah, I think I think people. I mean, if we found out now that Peter Dombrovskis has edited all his pictures and, and manipulated them or got somebody to airbrush fanciful structures, it would be well. I would be disappointed to say the least. So there is. But 
there are so many myths, aren't there? So um, Kappa, did did he actually photograph that um, guy in Spain in the Spanish Civil War being shot or not? Was he acting? Um, yes. Was he acting? Um, Iwo Jima, the flag being put up, was actually reenacted. Yeah. Um, the uh, Russian flag on the Reichstag was put in afterwards. Um, yeah. Kappa's uh, D-Day landing photographs, um, he didn't melt most of them. He didn't, just didn't take very many of them. But the, <laughs> but the myth about the melting was a good thing. And I don't blame him for not taking very many. I wouldn't have wanted to stand around on the beach getting shot at. <laughs> um, you know, that um, uh, oh, Lartigue, the, uh, the shot in um, that Paris suburb with the train going past on the... Yeah. Oh, yes, uh, yep. yeah. On, on the on the viaduct behind, um, Don't so tell they me it's found a composite. it's staged. No, no, no. They it's found Alaska. they found they it's staged. They found negatives from an earlier visit after Lartig died. No, and it wasn't Lartig, was it? It was um, sorry, it was the Hungarian guy. Um, Kertesz. 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 Yeah. Um, they found they found a train timetable and they found negatives from a previous visit. Um, so he'd obviously planned it. Yeah, which is fine. Um, uh. Henri Cartier-Bresson and his bleeding decisive moment. Um, <laughs> the man jumping across the puddle. He, yes. he took loads of pictures of the man jumping across the puddle. He didn't just put his Leica up to the hole in the hoarding and take one picture, which was the original myth. And he cropped you know, it as well. Yeah, you know, <laughs> how dare he crop it. So that's the, yeah, I mean, there are so many untruths in photography that, you know. So the real question, I think, is... Why do we cling to this? You know, we shouldn't. We're, I think we're comparing apples with pears. When you when you have something in the eyewitness tradition and you have something in the um, Grand Canyon is awesome, but so is a cup of coffee tradition. Um, <laughs> they're not really they're not really the same thing, are they? No, no. And this this but, is the only time it comes becomes a problem is is in comparison as an individual yeah. artist working on their own. Who, who cares? It's it's and and the artist shouldn't matter. But as soon as people start posting on social media, or entering competitions, or competing for places on the front cover of magazines, it it becomes an issue. That's that's where the 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 cognitive stress arises. <laughs> uh, there's, there's there's situations where people say that's unfair that he he. He dropped that sky in, and he's got that contract for five hundred pounds, or whatever. But is that is that because the profit motive has been brought in because it's in a competition, or well, because he well, sold the picture, or either egotistical profit or monetary profit? I think that's that's the issue. It is it is about gain, definitely, and hmm. uh, loss. That, that yeah. in wildlife photography of the year has had two very celebrated disasters in, in the last 10 years. The, the wolf, uh, which is about the 10 years ago now. Uh, which, the stuffed armadillo. And the stuffed armadillo. Yeah. And those are, are both fascinating <laughs> examples. But it, do, it does show that the, um, you know, the, the, the ambition of photographers to win major competitions is much stronger than their desire to remain truthful. And they're I very think, interesting they... because photographically they were the truth. There was no cheating I think, I think, I think the, the moral of the stuffed armadillo one is that if you're going to use a stuffed armadillo, don't use one from a hotel lobby. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it was have, from... have your own armadillo stuffed and then nobody will recognise it. <laughs> it was actually from the entrance way of the park. That was the, uh, that was a, the sad thing. He'd walked, oh, in, was it... he'd walked into the park, pinched it from the doorway, taken it in, then come back and put it back. 
and didn't brush it down afterwards so you could tell that it was the same one that had been changed. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, I mean, there is, there's a lot of money and there's a lot of reputation. If a, a single photographic win in a competition these days can create a career uh, for somebody. So it, it becomes it becomes quite personal and, and um, if people feel they've lost out because of this one of these things happening, I can understand why they feel cheated again. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the re reaction to Mark Littlejohn's winning image in um, El Potty was quite interesting, wasn't it? Because uh, in lots of ways, that was a very, very straight image. Uh, and, and in a way, I think people objected because, um, because it didn't have... Uh, a strong conceit in terms of composition it didn't look to be worked you know they're used to to landscape photographs having a strong design i think and his his had a very simple very stark very geometric very formal design i suppose but but very naturalistic as as well mm -hmm. um and so he was marked down by a lot of photographers and i remember reading comments um that um, people saying horrible things like um I've thrown away better photographs than that. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but so so they they were they were seeing something which was more true perhaps than images that they were presenting um, as being less worthy. So that that whole question of truth is also mixed in with question of culture and aesthetics. It's it's not it's not a straightforward. You know, if you pre if you presented or represented. A photograph from um, a roadside camera. Say there's one in Glencoe that shows shows Glencoe, you know, and it's it's a traffic camera. Um, would that be seen as being aesthetically and worthwhile, and and therefore a beautiful photograph, if if it actually was just a mechanical? We've we've shot this with the road in it because that's what we're mm. actually here to do. Happens to have the the study or the three sisters or whatever in the background. No, of course it wouldn't be seen as be, being um, artistically worthy. So actually, what we're debating is is also is also an artistically worthy version of the truth. Yeah, this, I mean this is to do with tr tradition, which is the probably the last thing I want to point uh, out. Um, and this is. Often where people say, oh, we should just allow things that were done in the dark room, uh, not quite understanding what had been done in the dark room in the past. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, M Michael Fatale's gallery had that big notice uh, the, when he was in... Um, not, not not the one in Page, the... the, the Springdale. Oh, I can never remember. Springdale. I always want to call it the same name as the Simpsons place. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> Um, which said um, no digital manipulation has taken place on these images. <laughs> he did spend like nine months of the year in the dark room, but no, it's okay because it's not digitally manipulated. Yes. You, you remember that, Joe? I, that, that I, I do, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to yeah. be a bit facetious, actually, go back a minute uh, to Tim's point about the, um, or David, your point of, about the, um, the traffic camera, because actually that's the sort of picture which a modern artist with a capital A would uh, would use and take into the Victorian Albert Museum and have a major exhibition of. Um, I was gonna I was gonna actually say somebody has had a major exhibition of pictures taken from screenshots of Google Street View. Uh, uh, exactly. Yes. Really. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was trying to remember that it was um, uh, 
the Dusseldorf school, there was a, um, yeah, I can't remember his name. It begins with an S, but I can't remember his name. Struth, yeah, he's done all those pictures of Yosemite and things, which look very kind of um, coldly. Yeah. um, um, From beside the road. Photograph, don't they? Yeah, and and that, but yeah, it's a different aesthetic tradition. So what what I was just trying to point out is that what we consider to be a truth also relies upon which aesthetic tradition we're looking at it. So from Struth's perspective, what what most people would enter into a landscape photography um, competition or 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 get published in online or in in a magazine or whatever would not be considered to be truthful landscape photographs. Yes. There, there's no element of truth in them as far as he would be concerned and vice versa people look people who make the kind of images that i was just talking about for for a competition would look at struth's images and say well that's not that's not good landscape photography because he hasn't you know he hasn't excluded the road and he hasn't worked at his composition and and the composition thing comes back to the fact that um because there's no maker's mark in photography we we have to show intent as photographers that's one of the ways that we prove that that we have um some artistic capability is is to show intent and, and part of that is craft you know exposing it well or, or whatever working with the color now and and luminosity in in lightroom afterwards and part of the raison d'etre for some versions of composition is to show that we have artfully framed it i mean, tim and i we had this discussion ages ago about um if you look at landscape paintings from any time really going back to the renaissance they don't do anything in the corners whereas almost all landscape photographs that we would think of as being good examples of that genre work the corners in some way that so so the, the truth is not <laughs> truth is not indivisible you yeah. know I, th- I think we have we have alternate facts I see. <gasps> It's a, it's a cultural or subcultural conceit, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then again, we work in a subculture, so we yeah, can, we can, we there, there probably is an accepted uh, democratic truth, oh, democracy and truth. It's a subject. That, uh, I think that's we should, we should a whole other subject. <laughs> Discuss. Yeah. I think we should probably stop before it goes somewhere else. Yeah. Um, thanks very much, Joe and David. It's a fascinating discussion. As usual, I don't think we solved any problems, but it's uh, great having a look at them. <laughs> we need to do these later in the day so I can have a glass of wine. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do an evening one. It might get more interesting then. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, David. You're welcome. Thank you.